please take out your Bibles and turn in then to John chapter 18. It'll be in verses 12 through 27 this morning. Found on page 904 in the Pew Bible. Five. John 18, 12 through 27, page 904. Remember hooks? I was explaining hooks a couple of weeks ago. I'm supposed to come up with something here at the beginning that's so compelling that it just grabs your attention and makes you want to listen for the next few minutes. Let's talk about church building architecture this morning. That's your, that's your hook. Are you hooked? Uh, recently, though, I was driving home one night and I was again struck by our lit up church steeple back there in the back. Ours is quite a unique church steeple. I'd like to know more of the history of it, but I do like the lit up Jesus saves sign as you're driving down 58th Street. It looks good at night. Be a little bit dirty in the day. We should send Jack and Peter up there to maybe clean that thing or something. Uh, But then above that sign, you have our little dome, which is again quite unique. I wonder why they didn't go with a more traditional pointed spire. I I don't know any. I don't I have no explanation for these things. But then moving further up above that little green dome, that's, that's why we're here. The, the top of the spire is your hook. Ours is just like a little, it's just like a little rod. Just sticking there. But it's actually like it's kind of, it's kind of over like this. It's kind of falling over. You can kind of even see it there in your bulletin. I don't know if VJ straightened it. That looks more straight. It's kind of falling over. We had a guy try to look at it and fix it. He couldn't do it. One day, one day. But maybe instead of fixing just the random little rod up there, we should change it. What would we, what could we put up there? What traditionally goes on the top of a church steeple? A cross. Right, of course, that's our first thought. But that hasn't always been the case. If you were to go over to Manhattan as you were walking up Fifth Avenue, as you approached 29th Street, you would not be able to miss Marble Collegiate Church. It's one of the oldest churches in our country, one that is sadly no longer preaching the gospel, but they still have a very beautiful building. Donald Trump's first of many weddings was there in Marble Collegiate Church. Um, But as you're coming up the street, you can get a really nice shot looking north, both of the church spire with the Empire State Building's striking spire right behind it. But what is it that strikingly tops the Collegiate Church spire? Does anybody know what's up there? What is it? Come on. It's a rooster. It's a rooster. Traditionally, many Protestant churches used to be topped by roosters. Why? Because of John 18, verses 12 through 27. Jesus has been arrested, betrayed, and arrested. We've seen that the action in John is picking up. The hour has come. The moment for which Jesus has come. The moment for which Jesus has been preparing His disciples, teaching them, telling them, 16.32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave Me alone. He was telling Peter, Where I am going, you cannot come. To which Peter has responded in 13.37, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Matthew 26, 33, Peter says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. John 18, 25. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Peter 
denied it and said, I am not. The success of this time is going to depend in large part on how much we can see ourselves in Peter. We closed last time with Jesus and Peter. In verse 10, Peter foolishly and wrongly attempts to defend Jesus by taking up the sword and cutting off a man's ear, probably in an attempt to kill the man. In verse 11, Jesus corrects Peter. He heals the man, Malchus. Jesus has just clearly confessed who he is. I am. And Jesus has clearly confessed why he has come. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And now our wonderful writer John masterfully weaves together four separate scenes, alternating between Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, trial, denial, trial, denial. And in so doing, uh, he is drawing this extremely helpful contrast for us. And in drawing this contrast for us, John forces our attention where it needs to be. My devotional reading this week has had me in Mark and in 424, Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention. Pay attention to what you see. We are seeing here one of the darkest and saddest scenes in Scripture. And as we are seeing here and paying attention to Christ, and then John draws our attention to Peter to see Peter, we are forced to see the dramatic difference between these two persons. The light and the truth of the one and the dark and the lies of the other. And in seeing Peter, we are meant to see ourselves. In seeing the darkness and sinfulness of Peter, we are meant to see the darkness and sinfulness of ourselves. Left to ourselves and left, Lord willing, I hope to leave you, Lord willing, this morning with no hope in yourself so that you will find all hope only in Christ. Yes, the light of Christ shines forth against the backdrop of the darkness of his enemies, but it shines forth all the more against the backdrop of the darkness of his friends. It is easy to deny that we would ever deny Christ like Peter does here. I don't know. What is all sin but a denial of Christ? What is our unwillingness to even identify ourselves as followers of Christ at work, but a denial of Christ? We are all of us, Peter. Let's consider ourselves in Peter, and then grace upon grace consider ourselves in Christ, though we remain still so prone toward Peter. Three points. Remember, everything is now about getting us to the cross. This is here to get us there. And so the main and key idea has to be the why of all of that. The main and key idea has to be verse 14. So point number one, we'll start with one man dying for many. Then the necessity and the beauty of that doctrine is highlighted for us in the person of Peter. So point number two, we'll see one man denying Christ. And then we'll close with three and see how all of us, all men, women, and children are dependent Desperately dependent on Christ. So let's read our text first. This is the most important part. We just sang, show us Christ. This is how God does it through his Holy Spirit. So pay close attention. I'm going to read God's word for you. John chapter 18. I will read verses 12 through 27. Please pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus 
and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Bow with me and let's, let's pray. Father, as we have sung, so now we do pray that you would show us Christ. Father, as the account that we have just read makes so painfully clear, apart from you, we can do nothing. But apart from you, I cannot preach your word. Apart from you, we cannot even hear your word. So we beseech you, we implore you, we ask you to help us. Help us to pay attention to what we have heard. Father, help us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Um, Father, we in these chapters are coming to the most important and momentous moments in history. Father, these are dark and heavy and, and serious things. Um, these are things that, um, that determine future and eternity, Father, and life and and death, and it is all bound up in Christ. So, Father, please show us Christ. Father, help me to communicate him clearly. Help me to get out of the way. I pray that your word would be clear, and I pray that Christ would shine forth clearly from that word. Father, show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, we start with one man dying for many. Our first point comes from verse 14, but we have to get there first. Let's set the scene. <clears throat> Verse 12 concludes what we considered last time. The Roman cohort, potentially hundreds of soldiers, have come under the cover of night, led by Judas to the place that Judas knew Jesus would be because Jesus often met there with his disciples. We saw in verse 4 that John highlights the knowledge of Christ, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. This is, this is Christ the King in total control of all that is happening to him. This is the Son of God, 
come to execute the will of God. And both his work and his will are arresting. Right? Who's the one that's really getting arrested in this text? We saw twice in verses 5 and 8 that Jesus reveals himself, saying, not I am he, but in the Greek saying, I am. And verse 6 tells us that when he did this, they, the, the army, hardened soldiers, killers, they, they drew back and they fell to the ground. This must then be some sort of revelation of the glory of Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the all-glorious one. He is the one who has revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 in the burning bush saying, I am who I am. Jesus here says, I am that. I am he. I am God. And so he has in some way just revealed himself to them and they are not flat. I am. And keep that in mind as we come to Peter. Twice Jesus says, I am. Twice. What does Peter say? But first, the soldiers get up, they dust themselves off, and in one of the clearest revelations of the stupidity and the stubbornness of sin, verse 12, they still arrest Jesus and they bind him. The one who's got the whole world in his hands is now the one who's got his hands in chains. The one who is the truth that will set you free is now the one who himself is bound. Why? First, verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, there are a few things that we need to quickly clarify here. Verse 13 says clearly that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. Now, look down at verse 19. Verse 19 says, the high priest then questioned Jesus. Who questioned Jesus? The high priest. Well, look down at verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You see the problem. Annas must be the one questioning Jesus in verses 19 through 23. Jesus was brought to him in verse 13, and he's going to send Jesus to Caiaphas in verse 24. So it's, it's Annas doing the questioning in there. So Annas was the high priest of verse 19. The problem, well, there's only one high priest. There can only be one high priest. So what's going on here? Well, we know from other historical sources that Annas served as high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. Right, we're now somewhere between 30 and 33. Uh, Annas, in the year 15, was deposed and removed by the Romans. But for the Jews, the high priesthood was traditionally considered to be a lifetime appointment. So there may have been many who still considered Annas to be the true high priest. Plus, even though he was deposed, in the years following 15, as many as five of Annas's sons served as the successive high priests. And now we have a sixth here as we have Caiaphas's son-in-law, who is the high priest. In Acts 4, verse 6, Luke refers to the high priestly family and then calls Annas the high priest and then mentions Caiaphas after him. So it seems most likely that Annas was sort of the, the power behind the throne. He was like the, the godfather of sorts. Yes, under the rule of the Romans, the other men, all his sons, all in his family, served officially as the high priest. But it's likely that Annas was the one who was really in charge 
the one who was really pulling the strings, the one who really had the power and authority. And so Jesus is brought first to Annas. Before the official trial, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, John gives us this first unofficial trial before Annas. Maybe also this is giving time for the Sanhedrin to gather so that they can make their decision official. But we've just studied this a few weeks ago in Matthew 26. And it's interesting that John records nothing of that trial before Caiaphas. Uh, The false witnesses, Jesus confessing that he is the Christ, Caiaphas dramatically tearing his robes, accusing Jesus of blasphemy before having him mocked and beaten. John leaves it all out. Why? Well, I think next week is primarily why. Uh, Pilate is why. John's focus is Pilate. John gives us this interaction and this exchange with Pilate that we don't get in the other three Gospels, and it is, and it is fascinating. So, so John's focus will be there. And I think he assumes that we know the rest of the story from the other Gospels. Plus, he has already told us all the way back in 1153 what would be the result of any trial before the Sanhedrin. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They've already decided to kill Jesus. John needs to waste no more time on that. But he does uniquely give us Annas. He does give us a unique focus on the person and work of Christ in this back and forth between Annas, Peter, Annas, Peter. Enemy, friend, enemy, friend, all revolving around Christ. So look at verse 19. This high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, the King James goes with his disciples and his doctrine. I originally titled this sermon, His Disciples and His Doctrine, but some of you are allergic to the word doctrine, so I, so I didn't do that for you. But that really is a perfect summary of this passage. His disciples, we have the disciple here. We have the best of them represented here in Peter. And we have the doctrine. And it is the disciples that demand this doctrine. What is it? What is the doctrine? Back to verse 14. Here's the main idea, verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Turn back to chapter 11 if you would like. Here's where that happened. I'll read it for you. In chapter 11, Lazarus was dead to begin with, but not anymore. Lazarus lives. Jesus reveals himself in 11.25 saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Question for you. Do do you? Do you believe this? Because this is it. This is everything. This Christ claims that in some way, Believing in him means that you will live and never die. And then to support his argument, he simply speaks words, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus does. Lazarus lives. The response? Panic. Fear for the religious authorities. What are we to do for this man performs signs? Clearly, there's Lazarus. This keeps up. The Romans will come. They'll take away both our place and our nation, our power and our privilege. So it's into that that Caiaphas speaks. John eleven 
49. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas here has been compared to Balaam's donkey, uh, speaking and saying far more than he was naturally able to, for he speaks of the salvation of the many. He speaks of the salvation of the many through substitution. The doctrine is substitution. The doctrine that you need to clearly know and understand and live in light of always is the substitution of this Christ for his people. The one is dying for the many. Huber is the word in the Greek. It is a precious preposition. It is one of the most important words in the Bible. You can't read and care about the words of God and argue that grammar doesn't matter. This little word is everything. Jesus dies for me. Huber. Look again at verse 13. Notice it there. First, they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. That for is a different word. That's not our word. That's another one of John's favorite words. But that for there is the conjunction. Gar is the, it's the pirate conjunction, right? Conjunction. Conjunctions connect. The for and following explains why they took Jesus to Annas. Prepositions, which our word is, also connect, but their purpose is more to relate. Prepositions relate one word to another. So you have Jesus Noun, you have me, noun, my only hope is that connecting, relating for. Who bear? Think hyper in our language. It means, uh, our English, it means over or beyond. So hyperactive, overactive. But it was also used more figuratively in the genitive case in the sense of it, it meant to be extended over something. Covering that something, in the place of that something. And so the word regularly carries with it the idea of on behalf of, or for the sake of, or in the place of. And this is the sense in which Christ died for us. I read one guy explain the difference between gar and huper like this. Gar explains for hyper contains. I really like that. I like that a lot. In Christ dying for us, he is extending himself over us. We are covered. We are contained in him. Therefore, what he does is on our behalf and for our sake. Therefore, Christ dying for us carries with it the ideas of both representation and substitution. And this, this is the gospel. This is the key and central idea of the gospel. And I somehow grew up in the church and never really understood this. And you cannot be a Christian without having some sort of basic understanding of this core key idea. And I grew up having some sort of concept of sin and that I was a sinner, though I happily loved and lived in that sin. I had some sort of concept that Jesus was somehow a savior, that his, his death had something to do with that and that I needed to invite him into my heart and, and say this prayer. 
Um, but if you had asked me to explain the gospel, if you would have asked me why Jesus had to die, how Jesus dying saved me from my sins, I would have had no idea what to say. Can you explain the gospel? Do you know why Jesus had to die? Do you hate why Jesus had to die? And do you love that he died anyways? It wasn't until I got to college and started attending the Summit Church that I began to understand this. It was really small back then before it blew up. I was greatly helped by the preaching ministry of my old pastor, J.D. Greer. We have since, since somewhat diverged paths, uh, he being super cool and successful and, you know, well, me. Um, but though I would quibble with J.D. on some things, now I'm still very thankful for him and the time that I had sitting under him. And I was very thankful for how patient and repetitive and clear and concerned he was to simply communicate the most important thing. He used to say that he realized after he had said something about 30 times and his other staff were starting to say, hey, you're saying that a lot. And then regular people would start to say, like, after you said something about 60 times, hey, you're saying that a lot. He's starting to realize maybe I'm getting close to saying it enough because it just takes repetition, repetition, repetition. And I began to really get it as he again and again taught the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. That's not revolutionary. I should have known that, but I, but I didn't. And it, and it took that simple, repeated explanation, many hearings of that Jesus in my place uh, to really start to get it. And ultimately, it took a work of the Holy Spirit, of course, but this was a revelation to me. Jesus in my place. One man dying for many. One man dying for me in my place. That's the gospel. And it's everywhere once you see it. We just saw it in 10.11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake. More literally, it says, for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know this gospel? Do you know this Jesus as Savior and this Savior as substitute? This is the doctrine, His doctrine. There is no salvation apart from this doctrine. This is why He has come. He has come to die, and He has come to die for us. So now, we need to clarify further. Again, why? Why does He have to die? because of Peter. It's because of us. The doctrine is demanded by the disciples. Point number two, one man denying Christ. Remember, the purpose of this narrative is contrast. Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter. Let's get to Peter. We are Peter. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. That's another detail that only John mentions. 
In the other Gospels, we hear only Matthew 26, 58, and Peter was following him at a distance. John gives us more information. So did another disciple follow. Who? It has to be John. Remember, John never names himself in this Gospel. But there is this one never named, 1323, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's never named, but he's always closely connected to Peter, as we see here, and as we'll see at the end, racing and beating Peter to the tomb. With him also at the end, as Jesus restores Peter. The second to last verse of this book, saying, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. You just read this account, it's just evident of all the eyewitness testimony, the details and the charcoal fire and this, all the things that John himself saw because he was there. This must be John. And so he has followed as well. And apparently he has some sort of connection to the high priest. How? No idea. There's all kinds of speculation. I finally gave up. I have no idea. Somebody like, maybe he's the high priest's fish dealer. No idea. We just, we don't know. Uh, But he has some sort of connection to the high priest. But why is John the only one that mentions that he was there with Peter? Why does no one else mention that John's there and John does? Again, not entirely sure. I'm speculating. But maybe John is trying to take some of the responsibility for what is to follow. He's the one who gets Peter in. He is the one who leads Peter into temptation. A situation he was clearly not ready for. Maybe John is in a way identifying himself with Peter in what follows, as should we all. So John goes in, he comes back out to get Peter in, verse 17. Here it is. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. There's the one man denying the Christ. Now let's review for a second. Let's not forget, who is this one man? Who is this Peter? Well, quickly, Mark 1.18. He is the one whom, when Christ comes and calls, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men immediately. Peter leaves his nets and follows him. Matthew 14.28. He is the one that when they see Christ walking on the water, cries out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. John 6, 68. He is the one who, when many of the disciples were turning back from Christ, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Matthew 16, 16. He is the one who confesses you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the one to whom the Father in heaven has revealed this. He then is the one, verse 17, who is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 17, 2. He is the one who beholds the glory of the transfigured Christ. And hears the very voice of the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Are you... One of this man's disciples? I am not. What? How? How could the rock so quickly collapse into sand? Look at verse 18. First again, you see, notice all the attention to detail. The charcoal fire. Again, this is John seeing these things. It's, it, that means it's dark, it's cold, it's night. 
servants and officers are standing by the fire, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's trouble. There must be symbolic significance to the place of Peter. He is standing with Christ's enemies. He is denying Christ. What what do soldiers do late at night in the midst of an arrest? What what are they doing? They're probably mocking Christ. They're they're talking about what's going on. Uh, They're they're, they're sharing. They're they're soldiers. It's it's probably crass. It's, It's probably crude. It's probably not a particularly godly environment. And there stands Peter. He's with Christ's enemies. He's denying Christ. What is Jesus doing during all of this? Let's shift to him for a second. Look at verse 19. Come back to Peter. Annas questions Christ again about his disciples and doctrine. Preliminary examination here. It seems that he's, he's seeking to build his case. Right? How big is this following so that he can present Jesus as a risk to the Romans? Uh, what is his teaching so that he can present Jesus as a blasphemer to the Jews? Look at verse 20. Jesus answered him. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What is Jesus doing? What is John doing? He's highlighting Christ at the center of all this. He's highlighting Christ and his suffering in all of this. He's suffering in both the trial and the denial. He's suffering both at the hands of his enemies and the hands of his friends. But notice especially that it is sandwiched in between Peter denying that John highlights Christ confessing. Peter denies everything. Christ denies nothing. I have spoken openly. I have said nothing in secret. I have made it clear who I am in both what I have said and what I have done. He's just done it again minutes before. He has confessed, I am, and an entire army is knocked flat. You kind of wonder, did all, the, did all the, like the soldiers just sort of agree, hey, let's not mention this to our superiors? Did, did Malchus, the high priest, he's the high priest's servant, did he mention what had happened uh, there in the garden? Again, we just don't know, but the whole scene is absurd. It's disturbingly absurd. This is the king, the authority over all, willingly submitting himself to the authority over Israel. It is the high priest who is questioning Jesus, who is, Hebrews 14, our great high priest. And in 20 and 21, I think that Jesus is calling out the false high priest and the illegitimacy of this whole thing. In a Jewish trial, you didn't question the defendant. Conviction was required based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses. You questioned the witnesses, not the one on trial. And the Pharisees know this. They said to Jesus back in 8.13, Hey, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. Witness and testimony is an important theme in chapter 5 as well. The point here is that Jesus is rightly pointing out that this whole thing is a sham. The one who is the truth is bearing witness to the truth of their lies and their injustice. These were illegal hearings. It's an unjust trial. It's the greatest injustice in human history. Verse 22, the injustice and the absurdity continues. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus 
with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Here's a fun question to consider just for fun for you later. We don't really have time for it right now. Did Jesus turn the other cheek there? Matthew 5.39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We know, of course, that Jesus did the right thing, for he was without sin. He does all things well. And he calmly and clearly bore witness to the truth and called out the sin and the injustice of the officer's evil context. We need to be careful about taking parts of the Sermon of the Mount out of context and applying them uncritically and universally. Jesus is not saying there that we are to never speak out against evil and oppose evil and sometimes even defend ourselves from evil. Jesus clearly confesses who he is. He clearly confesses uh, the truth of the lies and the falsehood and the injustice of all that they are doing. And his reward is to be sent bound to Caiaphas while he will be further accused and abused, beaten and mocked. Now, back to Peter. Anything new with Peter? Nope. Verse 25, look at it. Peter is asked again, same thing. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. I've said this before, but one of the simplest yet most important Bible reading, communing with the Lord through his word tips is simply slow down. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Slow down. Everything about our culture is compelling you and confirming you to fast. Go fast. All that scrolling and swiping and skimming, slow down. We have to work to compel ourselves and conform ourselves to slow. Read slowly and carefully. Pay close attention to this which we claim to believe is the living and active word of God. We claim that this is the very means through which God is with us and saves us and changes us and comforts us. Slow down. And if you were to slow down and pay close attention to John 18, you would notice something really neat. John is at it again. John is master writer. We've already hinted at this. The previous scene, twice Jesus confesses I am in verse 5 and 8 with a third report of Christ's confession in verse 6. In the current scene, twice Peter denies I am not in verses 17 and 25 with a third report of Peter's denial in verse 27. I am, I am not. I am, I am not. Christ confesses, Peter denies. Contrast, stark, unmissable, sad, saving contrast. See Christ, see Peter, see Christ, see yourself. And what do we see when we see ourself? We see sin, we see denial, we see betrayal, we see helplessness, we see hopelessness, we see need. We see in Peter and in ourselves that we are desperately and entirely dependent on Christ. And that is point number three. All men dependent on Christ. Let's consider the why for a second of Peter's failure and fall. We asked earlier, how do we get so quickly from verse 10, Peter, 
bravely wielding his sword in the face of an army, to verse 17, Peter, fearfully denying his Lord in the face of a, of a young girl. I think two main reasons, there's probably plenty, plenty more, but two main reasons are pride and prayerlessness. Beware pride and prayerlessness. Pride is the great enemy of our souls. We've already seen the pride of Peter only a couple of hours before this. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Pride. What is it? Well, first, it's one of our culture's favorite words. It gets an entire month. But biblically, what is it? Pride is high-mindedness. Pride is thinking highly of yourself. Pride is having a high opinion of yourself. Pride is high esteem of self. Almost sounds like the self-esteem we're constantly being told that we need more of, right? Maybe not. C.S. Lewis titles his chapter on pride in mere Christianity, The Great Sin. He calls it the essential vice, the worst evil, the sin that leads to every other sin. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Oh, the wretched sin of pride that still dwells within me. We have no idea, no idea how much pride is in us. It is the most secret of sins, the most stubborn of sins, the most seditious of sins. Pride is always present, pervasive, prevalent, persistent, pernicious, paralyzing, poisonous. Proverbs 16, 18 was one of my mom's favorite verses, probably maybe most repeated verses to us growing up. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. I think she was aware of how much pride pervaded her two sons in particular. Peter was proud, and he fell mightily. He thought too highly of himself, which is such a problem because that means he was thinking first primarily of himself, which means that he was not thinking of his Lord, which means that he was thinking way too lowly of his Lord. And again, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. How clearly that is illustrated here. For us. Think about your thinking. Think about your thinking about yourself. Where is your mind fixed? Your, your focus, your attention. Peter's problem was pride, and pride is so much more our problem than we think that it is. How do we know that's true? Well, because of Peter's second problem prayerlessness. Pride and prayerlessness always go hand in hand. Matthew 26, 40, Gethsemane, in moments before this, Christ has just spent hours telling them what's coming. He has prepared them. He has prayed for them. And then in one of the greatest and most mysterious moments in history, the God-man in agony begins to experience the wrath of God that is to come, pours out his heart before the Father, cries out to the Father in prayer, concluding, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then only two verses later, he finds Peter sleeping and not praying again. Pride. 
prayerlessness. And prayer is simply, prayer is helplessness. That's all it is. Prayer is helplessness recognized and confessed. Prayerlessness is always rooted in some degree in pride. It is a lack of recognition of our complete and utter helplessness. When I don't pray, it's because I don't think that I need to pray. But we are helpless. We have, we have nothing to be proud of. We have nothing to be high-minded about. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked but God. Nothing to be proud of but God. But the gospel. But the good news of what God is doing right here in our text. We are all of us Peter. The previous point was one man denying Christ, but it should really be all men and women and children denying Christ. And these scenes are being interwoven together to show us how utterly helpless we are in our sin. That we are full of pride and empty of prayer. And that we are powerless to do anything about it. Verse 14. That's why it's so important. And that's what Christ is doing. He is dying for his pridefully and prayerlessly denying people for you and for me. You see, Peter cannot live for Christ until Christ dies for Peter. And he does. Peter denies. Christ dies. And that's the whole point. Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know yourself? Truly, truly know yourself to be a sinner. No better than Peter. But that there is also a physician and a savior ready and able to save. Come to him, trust him, and believe. If you're visiting here with us, or if you're you're not a Christian, this, this is the one thing that you need to hear and know. You are a sinner like the rest of us. That sin separates you from the holy God. Every other religion and philosophy and worldview is telling you basically the same thing. Try your best. Be a decently good person and you'll be all right. Everything else is telling you to do and that you are basically good. This is here, and Peter is here to divest you of that foolish notion. Christ is here to reveal to you the only way to be saved. The one way that is different than all the others. Not what you must do, but what Christ has done. Not that you are good, but that you, like the rest of us, are sinfully bad, and that the wages of sin is death. But God. But God has sent Jesus Christ, his son, to come and live and die and rise again in the place of sinners. Jesus in my place. And the forgiveness of sins and restoration to the God who is life and joy and pleasure comes only through receiving and believing in this Jesus. As you turn away from sin and self and turn to him. There is no one like this Jesus Christ. All men are dependent on this Jesus Christ. Come to him. And come to one of us, uh, Pastor Mike, myself, someone around you. We would all be happy to talk you through this in more detail. And what does this mean? Who is this Christ? What does it mean to believe? What is the gospel? We would love to talk one-on-one with you about that after the service. Please come talk to us.
Brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have, by the grace of God, been saved, here's your application. Ask yourself, not are you denying Christ, but how are you denying Christ? You can deny Christ both by speaking and by not speaking. Or here's a very basic and simple application. Here's your homework. I'm going to estimate that about 1% of you are going to do this. Here's your homework. How about tomorrow at work? You take the practical and intentional step of simply telling someone that you are a Christian. Hey, should have told you this a long time ago. I've worked here for 25 years. Just wanted to let you know that I'm a Christian. Don't make it weird. We talk about what we love. Tell them that you spent your yesterday at church. Tell them that you spent the whole of your Saturday at church playing table tennis. What in the world? Ask them if there's anything that you can simply be praying for them. Do your coworkers even know that you are a follower of Christ? And if not, why not? It's a serious question. Again, easy for me. VJ, I'm a Christian. Right? Right, it's... It's easy for me. Again, I, I get it. I'm so thankful I do not have to work in the real world like, like you people do. So I know that it's hard. But this, this, this is important, I think. Do people even know what we confess to be the most important thing about us? Our, our identity. That we are in Christ. That we were dead, but now by the grace of God that we are alive. That we have the message that is the only means through which any of them can be saved. Tell somebody tomorrow that you're a follower of Christ. Do not deny, but confess. Who can you confess Christ to this week? So you can deny Jesus both by speaking and not speaking. You can also deny Jesus both by word and deed. 1 Peter 2, 24, written by this Peter. It's amazing. Written by this Peter. He himself bore our sins, our sins of denying Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree That, don't miss the that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he died for us that we might live for him. Sin is a denial of him. Turn from any ongoing unrepentant sin. Confess that sin. To a brother or sister in Christ, bring it into the light. Sin loves the darkness. Sin loves solitude. Uh, Some of you have been looking at pornography this very week. It is nothing but darkness and death. Bring it into the light. Confess Christ by confessing sin. He is faithful to forgive. Let's close by returning to our rooster. Why should we put a rooster on the roof? Not actually, somebody's going to be mad. I'm not actually saying we need to do this. But why would it be a good idea? Verse 27. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Matthew tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The end. Except it's not. Your sin and denying of Christ is not the end in Christ. I read a great line this week that argued that two of the best words in the Bible are found in Mark 16, 7. The women come to the tomb. Jesus is, of course, not there, for he is alive. And the angels say to the women, but go tell his disciples 
and Peter, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And prideful, prayerless, denying Peter, he will come to you. And there in Galilee, in John chapter 21, I cannot wait to get to John 21, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, nothing, nothing about John 18. And he gently and he graciously restores Peter and says, follow me. And Peter can, because Jesus has died and risen again for the forgiveness of Peter's sin and mine and yours. That's why we should put a rooster up there. That's what it symbolizes. God's amazing grace to sinners. Peter fails miserably. Christ succeeds perfectly. Peter denies. Christ dies in Peter's place, forgiving Peter of this very sin and countless more. Forgiving us of this very sin and countless more. Church, what a wonderful Savior we have. Don't deny him. Confess him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this story. This true historical account of your dealings with your people. Thank you that we are both represented in this story by Peter and by Christ. We see uh, represented in Peter our great sin and our great helplessness and hopelessness and need. But in Christ we see every single one of those things perfectly met for us, as he dies for us in our place, Father, for the forgiveness of our sins. That's everything. Please help us to see that that's everything. Father, show us Christ. Show us Christ through the contrast uh, of showing us ourselves. Father, so that we can better understand who we are in our sins, so that we can better understand who you are in your grace, so that we would better love you and be delighted by you and enjoy you and be glad. Father, help us to be glad for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And Father, help us as we go into the world. Wow, this, is a, this is a hard place to be a Christian. It really is. Father, we are often a fearful um, and timid people. Father, help us, please. Help us by reminding us that you are with us. Help us by reminding us of the good news of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we are dead, but that we are alive. Father, give us a desire increasingly for other people to know about this Jesus. Father, give us a passion and a care and a concern for the lost and a belief that the one thing that they need is to hear the good news of Jesus Christ who saves sinners. So, Father, may we be a witness and a testimony uh, to this Christ who has done all to save us um, from our sins. Um, Father, please help us. Please do your work through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.